Listener discretion advised by the sound contains salty language. So if you don't like that, turn it down now. No, now, like right now. Okay. Let's start this fucking show. <laughs> two years, I think. Two years. Yeah. Well, with COVID, it was either two weeks ago or, or eight years. No ago. one fucking knows anymore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> time is obsolete at this yeah. point. From the Coast Salish land of Seattle, we're by The Sound, your community-invested podcast. I'm Sarah Mays, speaking today with Aisha Hauser and Raven Juarez. On this episode, we'll be joined by the founder and publisher of the South Seattle Emerald, Marcus Harrison Green. This is By The Sound. How you doing? Hi, Sarah. Hi, Raven. So excited for today's show. So the vaccines have started, and I've had several people ask me if I'm going to get them. And I just want to... Like, what? Of course we're going to get them. What else? The whole world's been waiting for vaccines. How? What? Yeah, and I have several friends who are either in healthcare or are ministers and chaplains in hospitals who've gotten them. So, And they're posting pictures and super happy. At least it's the first dose for all of them so far. Have you all know people? Do you all know people who've gotten them? Um, I do know a few people over at UW who are, like, first on the list to get them. And that's really exciting because they're some of the people that... Um, I still kind of regularly work with. So that's great. And you know how excited I am to get back in the classroom to my students. So this is like the light at the end of the tunnel I've really been waiting for. So I'm just really excited. And I'll definitely, I hate shots. I hate them. I hate getting shots, but I've never been more excited to get a poke. I'm ready for it. (laughs) I know I'm going to pass out, but it'll be totally worth it. I haven't the slightest idea when I'll be able to get it, but as soon as I can, I will get in line and be ready to go. I It never even occurred to me to, I don't know, be suspicious of a vaccine uh, until probably, what, a decade ago when the scoop madness started happening. But yeah, I'm absolutely going to get my vaccine. And I'm a tad annoyed when I hear that it's a miracle uh, that we have this vaccine so quickly, but c- because th- this is science, babe. <laughs> A miracle would have been like eight days. Right. <laughs> a miracle would have been the end of March if we had it. This is this is not, we, this is one thing we don't thank Jesus for. It's science. So. <laughs> Did everyone have a happy holiday time? Well, like most lesbians, I'm a cat sitter. Um, so I've been running around. <laughs> I've been running around all over town uh, taking care of several cats, which has been delightful. I, I think it it definitely triggers some really great hormones or something in in my head. Uh, endorphins are those hormones? I don't know. I can't wait till we get the lesbian emails. <laughs> I love dogs, woman. Who are you to tell me what I love? I can't wait. This is a safe space for cat women. We've never promised anything more. <laughs> but yes, uh, I, I've been very busy with my cats, and uh, with the normal holiday stuff going on, it's been. Pretty frantic, pretty crazy. Felt sort of lucky to get my shit together today for for this podcast, but here we are. How about you, Aisha? It was nice. It was my my both my adult children were home. Um, it was quiet, um, except for the new dog we adopted. Uh, she's I, I was describing her as putting a Great Dane in the dryer. She's part uh, Akita, and they say Sharpay. I'm like, those DNA tests are totally bullshit because she doesn't look anything like a Sharpay. She looks like a Great Dane put in the dryer and more Akita. And she's very sweet, except to squirrels, other dogs, and men. So she's she's very loving. She's large, though, so she's intimidating. She's 56 pounds. This is your third dog. Yes. And she can't be around my other dogs, so we have her <laughs> here. It's a, and then my daughter was here with her dog, so we had four dogs here. It was Menagerie. Yeah, it was nuts. It was fun. It was fun, and it's and it's all, we're, we're all dog lovers, so we made it work. But yeah. How about you, Raven? How was your Christmas? Uh, you know, uh, I wasn't sure what to expect because I didn't see my family. I didn't go anywhere. Um, but my boyfriend had his sister over who happens to also be my best friend. And we had a two night sleepover and we watched movies and we just did a super low key Chris, like gift exchange on Christmas morning. But it was like really no pressure because it's just these goofballs. and. It was just fun and it was nice. And we went on a Christmas canoe ride because, as you guys know, I live on Bitter Lake. So we took out the apartment's communal canoe, me and my best friend Hillary, and we literally 
just drank spiced apple cider with whiskey on the canoe with our cozy uh, coats. And we started singing Christmas carols because we just suddenly had the spirit in us. And then people started coming out of their houses to listen to us. And they were like clapping at the end of the songs and like putting their arms around each other. And it was just really sweet. And I think that's going to, that memory is going to stick with me for many holiday seasons to come. I felt really happy to have that experience with my friend. That's wholesome as fuck. And when she says she lives on Bitter Lake, she's not kidding. Like it's it's like uh, six right feet from her window. door. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I'm. Have you been flooded yet? Uh, the water has risen quite a mu- quite a lot since yeah. the summer. We went onto the deck, and you usually have to take two relatively big steps down onto the floating dock. But we actually like stepped slightly up this time. So if that's any indication, we're in for a wet winter it usually does come up onto the grass a little bit but that's okay it's pretty i forgive it well guys i'm excited to get to our interview today but first we're going to go to a break and when we come back we'll be joined by marcus harrison green Hey, Raven. Hey, Sarah. What's the best part of donating to Buy the Sound on Patreon? Uh, other than helping us to make more episodes of the podcast? Yeah. I like the daily local news updates. With so much local news to follow, it's great to see all the stories that matter in one place without all the fluff. And it's available for as little as five bucks a month. Our news updates are posted almost every day to our private Facebook group, which all supporters are invited to join once they donate to Buy the Sound through Patreon. Our donors will also see previews of upcoming episodes, and they'll have access to bonus content streaming through our Patreon page. Are there any other benefits to supporting Buy the Sound? Listeners who donate at the Alki level or above will receive invitations to our meetups, where they can meet by the sound co-hosts, guests, and supporters of the show. We'll be having more of these in the coming months via Zoom and eventually in spots all around Seattle. Are there any other benefits for our supporters? Yes. Listeners who support the show at the Discovery, Westlake, or Gasworks membership level will receive all the benefits we described, plus the opportunity to nominate and sponsor a guest of their choosing to be interviewed in a future episode of the show. It's one of the many ways that we're making By the Sound a community-invested podcast. That's so cool. Remind me where people go to donate. People can learn all about these benefits and more at www.patreon.com slash by the sound. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash by the sound. Our guest on today's show is Marcus Harrison Green. He is the founder and publisher of the South Seattle Emerald, as well as a columnist for the Seattle Times. In 2016, Marcus was named one of the most influential people by Seattle Magazine and was just recognized by the Seattle Human Rights Commission, which gave him an award for 2020 Individual Human Rights Leader. Marcus Harrison Green, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is easily my highlight of 2020, so thank you so much. Uh... Wow. Oh, Marcus. I would take that as a compliment if 2020 wasn't the year it was. You know. <laughs> I'm glad. You know, I, I got to say, I mean, before being on the show, my, you know, the highest, you know, accomplishment was, you know, Wonder Woman 1984 for me, which was an excellent movie, by the way. So you, you did have a high bar to pass because that, that, that was a great film. So I just want to say that. Well, that's good. I haven't seen it yet, so no spoilers. I'm yeah, going to watch it tonight. I'll try not to. Yeah. So. I was looking into your past, um, and Are you hired uh, to buy like a, a, a detective, or I mean, what's you know, what, I mean, what's the context of this? Well, well, you're going to have first of all, you are 25 episodes in uh, to the show. You are the first man that we have had oh, wow. as a guest on the podcast. Um, so, I'm, you know, if, I had to bring up the diversity. I know that's, you know, important <laughs> in Seattle. So that's, you know, that's, our that's, token male. <laughs> it takes, as somebody told me once, it takes a lot of tokens to make change. So there you go. I guess that's. <laughs> and somebody's got to answer for the patriarchy, the crimes of the patriarchy. So get there, ready. There I'll do my best. I'll do my best. <laughs> So I, I, it, it appears that um, after college, you were a hedge fund manager. 
Yes, I, I worked in, in hedge funds down in um, the wonderful land of uh, Los Angeles, uh, technically Santa Monica area. So it was a uh, it was a very much a different life from what I have now. There was, there was a lot of decadence, um, a lot of uh, illicit uh, activity that we don't need to get into. Um, that befits uh, somebody working in the investment world, and you know, you, you, it was a lucrative time. I mean, you're you're down in in sort of uh, like I, I I say that was a time period where everybody, especially down then at that period in LA, where everybody's kind of a walking billboard, and so um, you're kind of just getting uh, every there's sort of a fetish, I guess, with the cosmetic, if you will, as opposed to um, you know anything that's substantive. Um, you know, not to bag on LA. I mean, I, I you know, I, I liked some of the people there and, and, but it definitely just wasn't my town. And, and after a while, um, you know, you just kind of get caught up in a lifestyle where everybody, everything is transactional and everyone is transactional. And, um, you know, you, you're literally taught if you have determined that you can't make money from somebody within five minutes, then you need to, you know, just cut off and leave the conversation. And, and ultimately, you know, that just wasn't who I was as a human being. And, in order to be that type of person, there's so many things that you have to, um, you know, try to excavate for yourself. And I just got tired of, of doing that. And, you know, I really wanted to do something that I thought was more purposeful and, you know, that I was just called to do. And, um, you know, it, I, I went to the less lucrative world of, of writing and storytelling. Um, and that kind of brought me on my current directions. How long were you in L.A.? Uh, about eight years. Wow. Is it as soul-sucking as it sounds? Because that's what it sounds like. It's, it's probably more, to be honest with you. I, <laughs> I mean, like, I, I'm just now repairing some of my soul. It, it, it's, yeah. you know, it, it took, um, it, you know, my soul is somewhat regenerative uh, now at this very point. But, um, yeah, no, it was, I mean, you know, I think when you go into to L.A., because I went to college down there, like I said, it, it, you know, you you're, you go in very naive, especially coming from, um, you know, you know, coming from the area that I came from in, in Rainier Beach, where, you know, you kind of, <laughs> for lack of a better term, you're sort of sucked into that whole narrative of, of you know, Hollywood, and if anybody can make it there, yada, 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 and there's bright lights and big stars. But, you know, again, all that glitters isn't gold, and you, you start to find that out after a while. Um, and again, you know, nothing against, you know, I still have friends and stuff that, that live in L.A. It's just certainly not a town that um, I felt was, you know, was you know sort of conducive to contemplation and reflection and and more of a sort of I, I call myself a non-practicing atheist but I guess it's sort of a for lack of a better term sort of more of a spiritual type uh, lifestyle it just just wasn't there for me. In your writing um in one of your more recent articles um I had accolades but I wasn't filling my cup you mentioned I love that you wrote this it said uh, what we do becomes who you are and like our status, our accomplishments and our wokeness or our profession is LA kind of where you started to have those revelations in that time. I think leaving LA, right. That was originally sort of that time period where you start to sort of feel just this sort of numbness and this emptiness. And it's kind of like you get there and you get to the top of the mountain, so to speak. And there's nothing except, you know, more to do, right. More money to make or, or more, um, you know, more trinkets to have and so on and so forth. And I mean, and that's just a very empty and, and, you know, mind numbing feeling. And for me, it just, you just get tired of it after a while. You get tired of that race, right? I mean, why continue to run a race when there is no finish line, right? And you kind of just start to ask yourself, what is the purpose of this? And, and what am I doing? And, and also, what am I coming? What am I becoming, right? What is, um, I'm reading this book now and, and the title says, um, what is the cost of these dreams? And it's about folks who have um, uh, specifically athletes, right. Who have uh, sort of have this singular purpose in their life. And then they get older and the things, right. That, that made them this sort of cutthroat person on their, in their um, field or, or what have you is the same thing, right. That makes them such a horrible human being <laughs> when they retire. Cause they don't know what to do. They haven't, they, they, they haven't, you know, planted, uh, you know, a full garden in in their life, if if you will. Uh, you know, they've only you know focused on this one aspect, which ultimately, when they get older, right, they can't enjoy anything because they, they don't know any any other sort of avenue of life. And I kind of saw that happening to me after a while. And you know, that wasn't the person that I wanted to be. Um, you know, I, I didn't want to look back and be like, 
gosh, what kind of friend could I have been? What kind of son could I have been? What kind of partner could I have been? What, you know, what kind of writer could I have been? What, what other dreams have I, um, you know, have I tarnished or have I thrown away to be in a singular pursuit of, and at that time was just to, to make other people, make rich people richer, <laughs> quite frankly. And, um, you know, that was something that ultimately just proved, continued to prove untenable. Um, and, you know, so I, I had to, for my own sanity, literally, I had to, <laughs> I had to get on a, um, a different track. Did it feel like the Wolf of Wall Street at all? I'm just curious because it feels like that would be so over the top that it's like this. I, I want to believe that it can't quite be that bad, but I mean, <laughs> you're laughing that knowing. Marcus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's I've been asked that question a couple of times. And, and yes, I mean, it, it, it can be that bad, if not worse. Um, wow. You know, I don't. I forgot the study, but I know there's a study that's out there that said that. I think it's one percent right of the population that are diagnosed as psychopaths, and they're disproportionately diagnosed are labeled as psychopaths um, who work in like the hedge fund industry. And I think a part of it is because you kind of have to be right. I mean, it's it you literally are you know have to turn off parts of your humanity in order to do some of that work sometimes. And I mean, it is like as cutthroat and as vicious and as sort of brutalizing to your humanity as, as any profession, I think. Well, glad you got out and you're here and doing some amazing <laughs> work with the Emerald. Seriously. I appreciate you. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, I mean, I feel sometimes that I'm paying a penance for all the, you know, uh, my time period as a hedge fund person, but um, you know, who knows? <laughs> Well, and something happened uh, about a year ago. It uh, you, you became uh, not just editor of the Emerald, but uh, publisher. Is that right? Uh, that there was some sort of change, and what I've noticed is for that last year, it's just become a much more vibrant web page and and news source and and community uh, resource. Yeah. So, uh, founded the Emerald in, in 2014. Um, you know, after sort of doing some small stints at, at other publications. And I just really wanted, I, I was a person who grew up in the South end of Seattle. And I, as I'm sure your listeners know, um, you know, that had just been an area that for so long, you know, that kind of had been bereft of any type of legitimate coverage. And, and I always say that it's, it isn't that I necessarily wanted it to just be a hundred percent, 24 seven glowing, you know, positive coverage, but I, I wanted the news media to extend to the South end of Seattle, what it extends to so many other places. And that was just, you know, multidimensionality and nuance and, um, you know, a level of thought and consideration that other, uh, you know, places to get that, at least growing up, I, I, I didn't seem to, to see um, bestowed upon the South end of Seattle from all these, uh, you know, various media publications. And so literally, um, you know, at that point, I was, you know, done in the hedge fund world, had, had gone through majority of my savings and, you know, decided to start up the, the South Seattle Emerald and, you know, literally did it in my mother's basement. And, you know, that <laughs> that 30-year-old person um, still living in his yeah, mom's basement, that was really me, but I was doing it for a purpose. So I, uh, <laughs> that made me feel a little bit better, I guess, about my circumstance. Um, and then from there, it just kind of grew and grew. Um, I, uh, you know, but with that, like any other, anything that you're entrepreneurial endeavor that you're kind of working 24 seven on, um, I started to become burnt out, burnt out. And, uh, you know, I was, I think, um, you know, Raven, when you brought up that, that piece about filling your own cup, I think I, I talked about it a little bit, uh, I talked a little bit about it in there and, you know, I, I would, I had turned to, um, a lot of, you know, alcohol, I was abusing alcohol, uh, abusing some other substances to, uh, you know, just <laughs> stay up and, and feel anything. And, and, you know, they, my sort of identity became, you know, tied into the Emerald and I, I just, you know, I had a break. And then at that point, um, I'd also had a diagnosis of bipolar disorder that I was sort of trying to run away from, if you will. And it finally all just came to a head. And um, I want to say in 2000, uh, 17 there, I get gotten offered a position, um, with the Seattle times as their South end reporter. And, you know, I decided to take it and left the Emerald for a year. Um, and, you know, no, um, 
uh, I guess no, you know, no shade or disrespect or anything like that, but it just, you know, um, that just wasn't, you know, a role working for somebody else just wasn't for me. And so, you know, after a year, uh, you know, decided to come back to the Emerald and try to build it up in, you know, to what I thought it, it could be and, and still is growing, but then also do it in a, in a, in a way that one was healthy, um, as a healthy me. And then two, recognizing, right. How much, you know, I needed to get out of the way, if you will. My ego needed to get out of the way in the sense of realizing that this is, you know, the emerald is something that's, that's just, is more, it's beyond me and it's going to grow um, beyond me at some point. And I need to allow, uh, you know, other folks to kind of take the helm here and there and to, to also be able to delegate things and to realize um, that this, that it shines better as a constellation than it does as one star. Um, and so I think, um, so Sarah, thank you very much for saying um, the kind words you did about the Emerald. But you know, I, I know that it's definitely the reason that it, it's as vibrant as it is is because so many other people uh, now continue to contribute to it. Sounds like almost like giving birth to a child. You know, like the, we're the conduit, but ultimately they are not even giving birth. They're taking <laughs> care of children. You know, that they're going to be and do who they are. We can only do so much. And it sounds like the Emerald is your baby. It's like there was a need in Seattle for the coverage that the Emerald offers. Um, and it w- I love the line you just said, it's better as a constellation instead of a single star. That's beautiful and so uh, generous of spirit. What I love about um, your story is even from, I mean, like having a baby, parenting or any job or profession you have, you do have to remember, and I'm learning this as well, to keep that balance and to preserve the parts of yourself that make that work possible. It's so, so easy when you're passionate about something, or even when you're highly motivated in a certain direction to like, see, have that tunnel vision and miss out on the parts of yourself that make you valuable to your community or valuable to your family or valuable to yourself and your own personal growth and development. So I just found that so inspiring about your story and what you had to say. And I'm also curious about I mean, I can imagine, but I'm curious what your point of view is about how shining that light on your community and having that duplicity and those nuances, how that can kind of change the greater image for all of Seattle. And then how does that, um, how do you think or hope that's going to impact the systematic racism that we face and the way the police are and the way our government, like our local governments work? Yeah, no, those are some great questions. Um, I, I think, right, I mean, there's, you know, as as though I have my issues with sort of the centrality of uh, Western philosophy in our society, um, I, I will say that you know one one thing that I take to heart is you know Plato. He, he said um, storytellers rule the world. I prefer to say that storytellers liberate the world. At least they can. Um, but right, I mean, we sort of become the stories that we tell ourselves and the ideas we tell ourselves, and it's that sort of constant accrual, if you will, of um, stories and, and ideas that, that lend to us to, you know, to our, our, our biases and, and our stereotypes and our, and our conditioning. And so to be able to tell stories constantly, right, that, again, shows our area as, um, you know, in an area that is honestly is unique and just in terms of its, it, I think I want to say that it's had for a while, it had um, the three most uh, three of the top ten most diverse zip codes in the United States, or in South Seattle, and so you have the, this just wonderful sort of amalgam and uh, mosaic, right, of, of of people and the ideas and the the thinkers and the um, and sort of the the the, the new way of, of how we comport ourselves as human beings together. Um, this was coming from this, you know, very small area and to be able to, to share that with people to show that, Hey, maybe there are different ideas. Maybe there are different ways of thought and of being and of, and of, you know, coordinating with each other. Um, and, you know, doing that, doing that through showcasing that I should say through storytelling constantly. I mean, I think that is, is super important because ultimately, right. People gravitate towards, their defaults and the things that are, you know, have, have been, you know, put in the, the ether, if you will. And so to be able to, to counter act or counterbalance uh, what passes is sort of common thought or, or what have you, I mean, that's utterly important, right. To how we change our world. I think, you know, I mean, I think there's a reason why 
certain stories continue to uh, last two and 3,000 years later, right? There, there's, uh, because I think ultimately, right, our, as human beings, we, we want to be a part of something and, and be a part of, uh, you know, a tradition, if you will, and, and a part of, um, you know, stories that can ultimately change our lives. And, and that's how we kind of transmit knowledge and information. And so to be able to do that constantly through the Emerald, um, you know, that's the thing that continues to, to drive us to, you know, to, to be as good as we possibly can. And some days we, <laughs> some days are better than others, obviously. Uh, but, um, you know, we, it, we try to every day just do the best we possibly can. The story you tell Marcus, um, and forgive me, cause I'm not remembering exactly which column it was in, but when your mother made the decision not to call the police, um, when you were downtown and having a break and the, the fact that a black mom needed to make the calculation of how to help her son, you, an adult ma- black male, to not get him killed. I mean, that is not a story shared by white mothers or, you know, or so that deeply personal story is one that I would say probably post um, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown. Uh, way before George Floyd <clears throat> has been trying to be told right by Black Lives Matter, but you telling it, it was heart wrenching for me to read that that your mother couldn't simply call nine one one. That was not a privilege she had, and know that you would be okay. Uh, so that story was it just you know kind of hits you in in your heart. So I, you know what? How did you decide to tell that story? Because I imagine it's you know it carries pain for both you and your mom. And did you ask her or how did, how did you make the decision to share that story um, that was deeply personal and painful, I imagine, for you to, with the world? Yeah, we, um, so I, I did, uh, you know, I did talk to my mom before I, I wrote that story, just, you know, to, to, to gauge her com- comfort level, um, you know, it was still, it was still going to be, you know, published in the, the, the most uh, widely read newspaper in the, on the West Coast, excuse me, in the Pacific Northwest. And so obviously I wanted her, her buy-in, but I, I think what really sort of triggered it was, um, you know, the story of Manuel Ellis. Um, just real briefly, for those who don't know, he's um, uh, a Black man who was, you know, killed under extremely <laughs> suspicious circumstances by the Tacoma Police Department. And I want to say it was in March of uh, uh, this year. Um, they're, you know, now finally you know, investigating, you know, what, what actually happened, you know, after, you know, after what, like, I think four months of it going nowhere, um, it, by an internal investigation by police, uh, Governor uh, Jay Inslee decided to finally um, do the right thing and, you know, take it out of their hands and put it into third parties' hands to investigate. But um, uh, when I was interviewing Manuel Ellis's family, you know, they talked about um, how he had had uh, yeah, he dealt with mental illness and specifically, yeah, bipolar disorder. And, you know, obviously it's, uh, I don't no one can say for sure whether that played a factor into, um, what happened or not with him. But, you know, I, I just, it very much, um, you know, made me reflect back on my experience. And then also, uh, I want to say the week that that article came out, um, I think two days before it was published, there was a, a man in New York, um, please, you know, forgive me, I've, or, there's just been so many, I forgot, his, I literally forgot his name, but, um, he was, uh, killed and his family also said that, you know, he, and he said that his family also said that he dealt with, um, struggled with mental illness and he also had bipolar disorder. And then, uh, I want to say just last month, there's another man who was killed under the same, uh, very similar circumstances also struggled, uh, with mental illness. And so, you know, for, for me, it's like, this just, this res- police response to folks who are dealing with mental illness. I mean, it, it obviously <laughs> does not work. I mean, it is just, it, it, and atrociously so, right. It does not work. And um, so to be able to try to shine some continued light on these things, um, you know, it, it's, it's certainly a, necess- a necessity. Um, you have also the case, right. Of Shirley Lyles um, here in Seattle. Um, so it's, <sighs> You know, so for me, it was like if I can use this form, this platform, um, with my column um, over at the Seattle Times to attempt to draw some attention to to this from lawmakers, and and they can see, hey, you know, maybe <laughs> this this obviously does not work, and right, and we can't continue to do this, and it, it's literally a matter of life or death for people. Um, you know, there are people who should be alive right now, if not for having the police, you know, called upon them, and and I think. 
you know, and there are days, I'll be honest, like I do, I don't want to say it's survivor's guilt, but I certainly count myself very fortunate to, um, to have a mother who, with that one, that my mother was actually there, right? And two, um, that she didn't, you know, call the police because who knows, right? And so if, you know, by writing what I wrote can hopefully, you know, uh, inspire, you know, some folks to, to maybe uh, heed this cry about defunding the police and putting these, reinvesting into um, things that actually, you know, work for folks are much more responsive to, um, you know, to folks, poor folks, I should say, in the community, then, you know, it's almost, it would have been criminal for me not to write that. Well, you're clearly very good at identifying the stories that aren't being told, that need to be told, uh, the stories that are necessary to get out there. But it's it's one thing just to uh, realize that, acknowledge it. Uh, It's a whole other thing to actually do it, and it it takes courage. It takes uh, your work is extremely brave, and I was. I, I think the first time I heard you uh, talk about bipolar disorder, I was immediately, I flashed back about 15 years uh, to when I heard um, a former football player named uh, Terry Bradshaw talking about his experiences with uh, major depression and anxiety um, and that, that he sought, tried medications for it. Um, and that was such a breakthrough at the time, as, as I recall, that there's a man and he's talking about mental health. And, you know, it's, it's ridiculous um, because, gosh, I just saw what another article from Gene Bach. Uh, <laughs> Reference him a lot here. Um, he, he said, uh, Apparently, um, at least half of Seattleites were experiencing uh, symptoms of depression in in November. Um, I I personally have dealt with uh, depression for as as long as I can remember, and have have, have struggled with anxiety as well. And it's um, that and other forms of mental illness are so common, and yet there's such uh, stigma about speaking out that it. You've got to be very, very brave to do so. And when I read your work, um, it's uh, y- your heart is definitely on your sleeve. Or you know, I, I guess an image I, I like more is um, it, it's it's like you, you've got your heart in your hands. It's this tender, <laughs> vulnerable thing, and and you're just you're holding it up for the whole world to see. Uh, and that's not easy. So um, just based on that alone. It makes a world of sense to me that the Seattle Human Rights Commission would have just given you this this award. Um, well, I heard like eighteen people uh, like turned it down or something, and they were just reverted <laughs> to me. But e- either way, I'm, 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 I guess I'm happy to give it. So, no, thank you. Um, no, I mean I I will say I, I think kind of when you were saying about um, being uh, brave in, in these time periods that. I, that's another thing that honestly I sort of credit to my community. There, there's not a story that I haven't done where I've about my community, right. Where I haven't, I, I guess, learned something or, or taught me something about life. And I remember um, speaking to Monique Franklin. Um, she's a great poet and she does the, or she used to do, I should say, I uh, had up, I believe it was called that uh, aphrodisiac nights at uh, the Rome, at Rome, notes. But um, anyway, Monique has a, a daughter um, who ended up uh, placing first, I think, in our age division in um, Taekwondo. And she's, uh, and I remember she, when I was interviewing her, she was talking about how she, you know, didn't want to do it at first. She had like a, not, a lot of negative self-talk and so on and so forth. And Monique said she put um, forward this, um, uh, this rule that it's, it's okay to be scared. It's okay to be afraid, but it's not okay to allow fear to stop you from your goal and stop you from action. And, um, I always, you know, I have, I have tremendous social anxiety. Uh, you still always got to prep myself up even to, to, <laughs> to come on, you know, podcast and so forth. And, and it, it takes, it takes a bit, a lot of meditation and, and, um, sort of focus, but, um, well, again, it's not easy it's, to answer for the crimes yeah. of the patriarchy. <laughs> yeah. <exactly. laughs> yes. That's, <laughs> but yeah, when it, um, but yeah, when it, uh, 
but it's one of those things, right? Where it's like, if you have something to say, right, then you have something to say. And if you have something to do, you have something to do. And, you know, trying to overcome those things are, are very important. So. Yeah. Well, um, that's something that like, I even tell two and three year old children is um, you can't be brave unless you feel afraid. And that's exactly. something I saw echoed in your writing. The thing about being terrified and afraid you wrote is that it's an opportunity to cultivate courage and strength. And I think that is so important to remind people, especially when you're asking them to do the scary thing of having some self-assessment and having some, you're not even asking for outright compassion in a lot of this writing. It's just consideration. It's just to, to be seen. And I think for a lot of people to challenge the way that they see the world or they see our communities, they see our city is challenging and it can be scary. So, um, I just really appreciate that that's kind of at the center of what I see in your writing and what I hear from you when you're speaking. And I think that that's really um, an empowering and important reminder. Thank you for saying so. You said um, in one of the articles that uh, uh, Raven referenced earlier, uh, and we'll put all these in the show notes. Uh, I strongly encourage people to read them. And uh, if there are any publishers out there, I'm telling you, this guy has a book in him. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, You said, um, we cannot change this world without changing and loving ourselves first. As bad as things may be, this world can just wait a little while longer for you to save yourself. Which uh, is is a much more uh, beautiful uh, than saying you need self care, which is kind <laughs> of on the line term this year lately. But uh, at, at a loss for uh, anything as eloquent as you put, uh, what are you doing for self care? Um, yeah, it's a good good question. I think for me, it's it's trying to just find what equilibrium is right for me, um, uh, and I. And, and I think I've gotten to a point, right, where um, I, I try not to compare myself to, to other people um, in the sense of like, okay, maybe, you know, them at their pace, that's good. That's good for them. And it's right for them. And, and my pace is good for me and right for me. And, and so, yeah, it's just trying to find equilibrium and, and, and also realizing how much, um, you know, that means, you know, spending time with, with family and, and close friends, um, you know, wanting to and then also that the whole, uh, I guess, memento mori, right? That remembering that, you know, one day um, I'm not going to, to be here, if you will. And I want to sort of at the end of the day, I want to do a self-assessment and say, okay, what did I do today though, right? To how did I utilize this day, right? I, we, it's going to be gone tomorrow, right? So the things that I traded um, for this day, meaning, you know, either the work that I've done or the time that I spent with friends or what have you, I want to be able to say, Right, that I spent it in a way that was um, uh, that in some way, right, uh, aligned with my values, or helps me to grow and 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 become the person that I want to become. You know, sort of collapsing the distance from the person I am and the person that I, I wish to be, and also that I, I spent a, a good deal of life, like actually living it and experiencing it and um, exploring it, right, and. Um, you know, this, this peak through oblivion that we get from, you know, between birth and death, like, did, did I fully utilize it, right? Um, and so sometimes that, that just means being still. Sometimes that means speeding up. Sometimes that, you know, that, that means, you know, going in between, I guess. But, um, you know, so for me, it, it's, it's just, you know, sort of a co- constant assessment of how do I, um, you know, how do I balance the things that I, that I want truly want in my life. And that's, you know, for me, that's wanting to be uh, the best writer I can be, uh, wanting to be um, a person who's attuned to the needs of my family. And then also just wanting to sort of be an explorer in life and um, try to do something at least, you know, once or or twice a week that actually, you know, just scares me. And um, so, and, and to try to try to face it. That is beautiful, Mark, because you really do need to write a book. Um, because I appreciate especially the what's equilibrium for you, right? Because there's this the weirdness around what's happened with the idea of self-care is it's become so talk about transactional. I mean yeah. it's such bullshit, right? And it's 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 it has to be individual, it has to be personal because 
my equilibrium is not your equilibrium, right? Like, you know, we can't even talk about how to, you know, care for ourselves and mental health in a way that doesn't become commodified and, right. you know, screw Gwyneth Paltrow and, and <laughs> create, you know, because then it, it becomes meaningless, really, when it just becomes, you know, $400 vagina eggs that are going to actually infect you, so not you, but those, right. <laughs> whatever. So I appreciate the framing that it really does have to be look inward and asking ourselves questions and what does equilibrium look look like to us, which which isn't the same um, for for each person. So, yeah, it sounds like a lot of the um, values you bring to your writing into the Emerald are also kind of the same values you bring to your personal life is having room and space for duality and having room for things that um, maybe you know, some like, okay, what am I trying to say? Having room for, um, the anger, but not letting it overcome you and having yeah. room for the sorrow, but not having overcome you, having room for the joy, but not letting that take up the spotlight and shine out what needs to be addressed. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I've, I've been comfortable enough knowing and, and being, uh, I guess I've, I've been comfortable enough coming to sort of the realization that life is paradox, right? It is, it's, it's contrast, right? It is good and bad. It is, um, you know, joy and sorrow, as you say, right? It is, um, you know, jubilation and, and tragedy. Um, and, and all those things are within all of us, right? But how do we sort of use them and channel them and harness them? How do we use them in you know, healthy or productive ways? How do we, you know, put the energy that, that maybe we get from jealousy or, or what have you into, um, you know, work that is, that is better or that, you know, betters us and betters other people. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I guess I have a fundamental belief that, that people aren't necessarily fundamentally good, nor are they fundamentally bad. They're just fundamentally people. Right. And I think that allows a level of humility, right. Cause it's like, oh, well, people are just fundamentally people for the most part, right. There are those psychopaths we talked about earlier, but for the most part, people are just fundamentally people. Then it also, sort of, I think, allows a person not to rationalize, right, behavior or things within themselves that they wouldn't in other people, right? And, and I think we all, you know, have, sort of have that tendency to, 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 to do that at times of, uh, <laughs> you know, rationalize, you know, things that, that, you know, annoy us in other people. And so for me, um, yeah, being able to exist in that paradox, it not only allows, I think, grace for other people, but also grace for myself. And I think, you know, we needed a world of grace in, in some ways. I was, I was actually listening to um, Eves, Eves Insler, who I, I believe goes by V now as, as a playwright. Um, and, you know, she wrote The Apology and uh, it's her most recent book, I'll say. And she talked about how, um, uh, you know, she is a survivor, obviously, of uh, a d- domestic uh, abuse and violence from her, her father. Um, who died before she was able to, uh, you know, get an apology for him. And she, she wrote this book called The Apology, where she said her does it for him. And she talks about how she didn't do it for a justification of it, um, because there is no justification, but sort of for the, the explanation that she needed of, like, how this monster kind of be, could become this monster, and then also allowing her to forgive him. And, and I just thought how... Um, <laughs> I don't know how, how like in some ways profound sort of that was. And then she talked about how, you know, the you not allowing um, this inhumane person to, to destroy her humanity. And that's why she sort of wrote this. And it, and it was, I don't know, I just thought how, you know, beautiful um, it, it sort of was and how she was even as messed up as, as this life can be, right? It's like how she was still able to find in some ways, right? Um, re- joy and, and redemption still within this life. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess to your original point, right? It's like this life that is a paradox is it's still worthy of, of living through, throughout whatever. I think you said earlier, you're a non-practicing atheist. I, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I need to get. I need to get back into it. I guess I don't. Well, I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm lapsed. I'm sorry, Sarah. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, that's very. Dis- well, no, no, Marcus and I share the Unitarian Universalist uh, faith <laughs> tradition. So you use of color, which are kind of we're not unicorns because there's actually 
I don't know. The number varies. We're, we're more endangered species, I guess, than the unicorn. We're more, that's the best way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, the faith is, is um, so overwhelmingly uh, white and um, it doesn't have to be so. However, and, and I, I think there's been more recent um, efforts to be more, um, the word isn't even welcoming. It's more than welcoming, like right. truly inclusive of yeah. what it means to not center Eurocentric philosophy and religious uh, interpretations of white Jesus, which is the, to me, the evangelical Jesus and black Jesus, the liberating Jesus, which whether, and it's not even about believing Jesus, son of God, it's more the, how I think this country has embraced the Christian ideology um, and I mean, if you, you only have to look at the prosperity gospel and that bullshit to see how awry religion has gone, where Unitarian Universalism, I think, has a potential, potential to not to, to have people who are wanting to be atheists and humanists and not center a supernatural deity, but rather what is our obligation to each other while we're here, while we're in that glimpse, as you put it, between life and death. Um, and, and we, ha- we being Unitarians have potential, but you know, we it, kind of like the United States, we never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. So, <laughs> I also want to say about Seattle, Seattle was very hard for me to, I'm from New Jersey. That's where I grew up. So I've only been here since 2013. What's, what's interesting about Seattle is ha- the, not only the conflict avoidance and the passive aggressive, but the kind of cognitive dissonance of what Seattle thinks it is as opposed to the reality. And so what's beautiful about the Emerald is it's especially because there aren't enough independent newspapers left in the whole United States. Um, And the Emerald is, as we've been saying this whole time, telling stories that are simply never going to be told if if they weren't told in the Emerald. So um, kudos to you because there are rich and engaging and beautiful stories to be told in Seattle and wouldn't be without um, the Emerald and podcasts like this. Uh-huh. Yes, of course. <laughs> Mainly podcasts like this. Like, no, no, the Emerald, the but, you know, the, yeah, yeah, but it's true. You know, we, we do talk about, I mean, other shows, especially, well, this one about what's happening in the city, because the city also has a lot of potential to not be so freaking mean and center on the absurd amount of wealth that is, you know, right. Bezos. So, and others. I don't have a question there. I'm just. I'm oh, <laughs> no, I, I loved you riffing. That was great. I have a question. Uh, well, because um, if if you're uh, a non-practicing atheist, this means I, I guess you're going to church. Uh, I, I personally just say I'm I'm an atheist. Uh, I'm just not a dick about it. Uh, but I'm not going to. <laughs> yeah, church. That, that's also a good way. I mean, I will say that I do. I have picked up some you know Zen Buddhism here and there. But I mean, it's you know it's a non. Um, there's there's not a deity within Zen Buddhism, and it's and it's very much a, a you know can be, uh, can be, is compatible, I should say, with atheism. But even, even as an atheist, you have, uh, this faith community, uh, the Unitarians and, and, and for some reason they're, they allow, uh, heathens like us into the mix. (laughs) Well, I don't know if they would allow me. That's just hypothetical, but um, what are are you you getting out of that? Yes, you're, you're welcome in, 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 and yeah, it, it is your home, right? It's, uh, Somebody told me something once. There's a difference between saying you're welcome and when you're welcome, it's like you're a guest, and right. And so I always say, like with the Emerald, um, that uh, none of our community is, is welcome because if when some place is a, is your home, you don't need it any. You don't need an invitation, and so it's just there. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there's you know my my children, neither of whom who are adults identifies you use. Um, <laughs> I guess it's, you know, my mother's revenge because I grew up Muslim and she still thinks I'm going to hell. So this is, this is what happens, you know, you, you know, right. yeah. whole nother show. But I think, I think that's the part that I think humans, we need community. We need to be in connection. Um, we're wired for that. We're not wired to be isolated. And so the question is, how do we, and I don't have an answer. It's just the question of how do we come together in the United States, especially because we're so coming from so many different places and, um, and so many our city right now, I feel like is at, what even our city right now, I feel like is ha- has a lot of different, very different points of view. Oh, yes. <laughs> right. And ha- how do we center human needs? How do we 
collectively agree it is not okay that people are living in tents on our street. How, how I mean, how is this controversial in a city that is so wealthy, that has so literally cars that are worth 400 grand are driving these streets, driving past people living in tents? How, how are we, what is the cognitive dissonance? And I think you answered it, sociopaths and psychopaths that are <laughs> in these, because, because otherwise, how is that disconnect right. happening? Like we can, we don't need to be this way. The city can absolutely afford to tomorrow fix the homeless, the house, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I was, it's, it's interesting. You said it. I was, um, so I have a friend of mine who actually happens to be a Unitarian and they have, they have three different, uh, properties. And so they, uh, they have a, uh, a condo on Queen Anne, um, that they, um, that if, you know, some of their friends and social justice movements need, you know, time for respite then they, um, you know, then they offer it up to them to, to stay. And so, um, they asked me, did I want to, you know, stay there a couple of weeks ago? And so I did. And, you know, you're, you're in, you know, Queen Anne. I've, I've never actually stayed, stayed in Queen Anne. I mean, you know, you drive by, walk by, whatever. But, um, but yeah, it was just so fascinating. You're, you know, the, the condos on this, you know, fifth floor or whatever. It's, it has rooftop view. And you see, like, just out the window, um, all these, you know, these tents that are lined up as well. And you're like, and then you, you see people walking down the street. Um, you know, with blinders on, so to speak, not noticing anything or, or pretending not to notice anything. And it, I mean, that just very much sort of encapsulated what this, you know, city is um, at this point, right? It's, uh, again, you know, the cognitive dissonance of, of saying that we care about individuals and we care about people, but we care not to actually, you know, look at them and, and see them as, as human beings. Um, you know, we, we, we look at them instead as, this is, as blights or whatever on our, um, you know, view of Puget Sound. And um, I don't know. I mean, it's just, I say that I think, you know, when all this talk of revolution and, and I believe that's correct, but we also need a revolution, I think, of values and, and narratives and what's, you know, actually important to us um, in this city. Um, and I mean, obviously in this country, yeah, but I, <laughs> I think we can, hopefully we can have uh, affect change um, more rapidly in, in the city than we can across the United States. I keep thinking people need Jesus, which is ironic as fuck. Like, cause I'm, I'm, I don't have a good history with, you know, Jesus. Uh, but, you know, these last few years here in Seattle, just seeing how people treat the homeless, seeing how people talk about it and, uh, just the, the attitudes towards, um, poverty and life and death. And, uh, I, it, I just get the feeling that a lot of folks in this city, just need to go to church a few times to, to hear about. <laughs> I think just need a new operating system, right, on, on their brain. I mean, I think we're, I, I mean, I guess referencing Gene Balk again, I, I, I think there was a piece that he did about how we're the most unchurched city or something like that. <laughs> and I mean, and that's, that's fine, I, I suppose. I, I just think that maybe we need, I was, I was recently watching this uh, Brad Pitt movie called uh, Ad Astra. Um, which is, it's just like three, it's just a three hour slog of a movie, right? I mean, if you, if, if you have insomnia, you can just put that thing on. But anyway, at the end, it was like the last 10 minutes though, right? And, and I hate to, to spoil it, but it's, it's been out for three years. So yeah, if you yeah. haven't seen it, then that's one. The statute but of anyway, limitations has passed. Anyway, so, you know, he's been on this journey to try to find his, his uh, father who went on this journey to try to find intelligent life in the universe. And he came back and he didn't find anything and it, and it drove his his dad um, insane. And so he's talking to his father at the end and he's, and his dad is, is, is just upset and apoplectic. And he's like, I didn't find anything. I didn't find anything out here. And Bradford says, that's okay. Cause that means that we're all we have. And we know that now. And so that means we can do better essentially. And I think, you know, I look at uh, Seattle and then sort of my mindset that I have is somebody who's not necessarily religious per se. And it's okay. We know that we're all we have. And so, and that is okay. And so that means then <laughs> these things that are man-made issues, such as poverty and 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 our uh, homeless crisis, and that 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 means that they can be unmade by us as well. So, um, yeah, we need imagination because money's made up. Money is made up. We've we've collectively decided that people with money can live and have health care and have things, and people without it can't. And it's paper. So we need to expand our imaginations. Right. Well, I mean, it's like when you wrote in How I Survived the Collision of Racism and the Stigma of Mental Health, 
Uh, I mean, when you think about the experience of Black people, you think about the experience of mental health, you write, imagine what it would be like if life and death didn't rest on the chance of consideration. And I think that that when we look at the issues we're facing at our city right now, you know, people who are in a certain socioeconomic class do get the consideration of their mental illness because they have health care. They have support systems. They have people who are there um, making that acceptable. And those are the same people who are on those you know, they're having the benefit of those prescription medications, that therapy, and they're also walking down the street and not seeing someone who's probably suffering from a very similar diagnosis, who was born in a different family, in a different socioeconomic class, and somehow we're not able to see ourselves in that other human being whose suffering is equal, if not the same as your own. But you have, I, I, I just, I think that, that that this kind of work is so important so people can make that connection and can see the humanity. And I think it does come also from like what you're saying, you have to have love for yourself and respect for yourself to be able to see it and value it in other people and then want the same for them. So it's just as much a need for people to go inward as it is for the ability to look outside. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, and again, it goes back to that paradox, right? It's like the, the, and and the yes and, right? It's, (laughs) it's, It's holding the love for yourself while holding it for um, someone else. And I think that's what makes us whole. And it's hard to do in our society, I think, to hold love for yourself. I think we're so yes. often <laughs> to this picture of what we thought we would, I mean, I'm about to have turned 30 and I had this oh, congrats, in my uh-huh. head of what that would look like. And it's just not where I'm at. And I think that that's really like, not just for millennials. I think that's always been the case. Um, but it's definitely feeling more in contrast, like, because we're always trying to be as successful as our image of a rich white man. Like if I can't have everything that a rich white man has, I'm somehow failing, but that was never going to be for me anyway. So I think that it's really hard to come to terms with that and to have love for yourself instead of just shame or embarrassment or feeling like you didn't try hard enough. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think we have to have more of that sort of interior sense of success or whatever you want to call that, or at least interior uh, meaning. Uh, if you will. I mean, I think uh, I was actually funny. I was just listening to a podcast with uh, um, intersectional intersectionality matters with uh, Kimberly Crenshaw. And they were talking about, um, you know, why uh, it, and it was a marginal number. I will say that, but why more black men went for Trump this time and in, um, in 2020 than they did in 2016. And they, and they, you know, brought up that, that whole sort of um, concept uh, the toxic masculine concept of success and how, you know, people, there's some people still locked into that whole idea of success, meaning <laughs> the success of a, of a rich white man <laughs> and needing to sort of preen our, our minds off of that and off that sort of psychological addiction, if you will, to try to find something else. And and, and so, yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's vitally important. What kind of city would you like to see Seattle become? Ah, it's a good question. Uh, we're actually uh, doing a, a series on that now, um, and then we're called Future Gazing, where we've asked people to for their vision. Um, I think the city that it, it says it is right this this inclusive, um, equitable, caring, compassionate, um, loving city, right? That that puts the the needs of the many and and and, and the and the care for, for those who need it most above those who quite frankly don't, don't, you know, need it least and yet get the most of it. Um, you know, I, I think that would be a city that would be an excellent place to start. I'll, I'll say. Um, and if we could be that and hopefully be a model for, for other places, um, I think that would go a long way. Marcus Green is the founder and publisher of the South Seattle Emerald. We will have links to several of his best articles uh, in our show notes. Marcus, uh, could you uh, stick around um, after the break for our gratitude corner? I certainly will, yeah. Um, Sarah. What's up? I just read that most podcasts don't pay their guests. I know. It just doesn't seem right to not pay people for their time. 
And by not paying people, podcasts limit the ranges of voices heard to those people who can afford to miss work or those who are able to record while at work. I think wage earners should be able to be heard too. Does By the Sound pay our local guests? We do. That's one of the reasons we call ourselves a community-invested podcast. All listeners who donate to Buy the Sound on Patreon help us book more local guests, which means more episodes for our listeners. Are there any other ways for donors to pay our guests? Yep. Our top donors are actually able to nominate and sponsor local guests to be interviewed on the show. Those guests earn even more for their appearances. Where can listeners donate? www.patreon.com slash by the sound. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash by the sound. Raven, what are you grateful for this week? Oh, um, I'm glad you asked. I just watched the movie on Christmas Day, the Pixar movie Soul. And I was prepared to be a little disappointed, but I wasn't. I really loved it. And uh, it really, it actually touched on a lot of the themes we're talking about today of kind of not getting in such a beautiful metaphor for kids, a way of explaining, you know, your life's purpose isn't to do the thing. Your life's purpose is to live and feel joy and um, whatever you can accomplish along the way as a manifestation of that joy is the purpose of life. And, oh, I just love to see it. I love it for the kids. Um, I'm excited for the conversations. I think it's going to spark in families across America. Um, and it was just a really nice reminder on kind of a strange holiday this year, this weird 2020 Christmas to have that kind of glimmer And, um, I'm also really thankful for this podcast. I mean, I, every week or every two weeks when we meet, I feel like it's such a great experience for me to like learn and conversate and get to know our community from different points of view and different angles. And for me, I feel like I just grow from it and I'm thankful for it. So thank you, Sarah and Aisha. Well, I want to thank Sarah because it was about a year ago. I think Sarah was our first broadcast, December, 2019. Just what three yeah. months before, four months before the world just there was a very different sideways. vision um, for how the shit would go down. Before the shit, so Sarah <laughs> called me and said, "Do you want to do a podcast?" I'm like, "Yes," uh, and it's been just extraordinary. And uh, I'm super thankful for my 19 year old son who said, um, who wrote us each a letter for Christmas that made us cry. But it was just very sweet and loving. That's what my mom says she wants every year. She's like, just write me a letter about how much you love me. Oh, no, seriously, though. I mean, it was so, it wasn't, you know, I was just, there was something, and I wasn't expecting it at all. But, I mean, it was very sweet and very kind and very um, touching. And so it wasn't, I mean, he's written beautiful cards. One year he wrote me a card in Russian. My son speaks Russian, which was hilarious. I'm like, I need this translated. So it was very sweet. But it was just something about that was just super touching. So, um, but I'm thankful for that. And I'm super thankful, Sarah, that you had this brainchild. And that's what you and Marcus have in common. You said, huh, let's do a thing that is not there. And it happened. So thank you for that. Marcus, what are you thankful for? Um, I am thankful for all of you for having me on this show. So thank you again. This is a a great way to spend a Sunday. And then um, also, I I just received a text from my... uh, friends uh, rob and glenna they just let me know that their uh baby was born um just uh, an hour ago so Yay, baby. Uh, yes so it's uh, uh, uh is this the first by the sound baby i, I guess I, <laughs> yes <laughs> we're breaking the news names, right so here yes. I'm gonna, you know <laughs> asia raven sarah is it whatever gender you can yeah. those <laughs> i love it i love it so yeah thankful for uh for new life this in this um with a new year approaching. Beautiful. Congratulations. I'll let them know. Thank you. Well, I am grateful for all of you. And um, I don't say it enough. Uh, I am grateful for the supporters of By the Sound. Um, We have been on for a year now. Uh, We just started out with a a vision of a podcast that wouldn't have any men on it for the first year. Um, (laughs) No. Actually, we did, we did. We never. Don't start rumors. <laughs> Honestly, it was I didn't even know till you said it that Marcus was our first male guest, which is hilarious. I think he's the perfect first male guest. I'm I'm proud of this decision. Yes. <laughs> Again, yes. honored, honored. You've defended the patriarchy well. Um, we're, we're, 
our our supporters uh, on Patreon um, have kept this thing going, and we were just thanks to them, we were just able to make um, an investment in some uh, new equipment that's going to make the editing and production a lot faster. It's going to help us uh, podcast uh, more and more easily, and that's all because of our uh, generous supporters on Patreon. Um, so if there are other listeners that want to help out, they can go on there at uh, patreon.com slash buy the sound. Um, and for folks that can't afford it, you could uh, rate, review, and subscribe. If I were better at marketing this podcast, I would tell you every week to rate, review, and subscribe. But perhaps luckily for you, I'm just going to say this one time. Uh, you can get on the Apple Podcasts app and rate, review, and subscribe by the sound. Uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you all for being here, Asia Raven and Marcus Harrison Green. This has been By the Sound, your community-invested podcast. By the Sound is an Ahoy Hoy Media production. Ahoy Hoy!